Good morning. Good morning. Very good. You're awake. Um, I, g- I gave the folks in the first service an exercise um, to stand up and touch their nose and step out in the aisle and stretch and touch their feet um, just to make sure we were all here, ready to go. Because, you know, in church, we often have things that make us stand up and sit down. Like, in reverence to God's Word, we stand up, but sometimes we have you sit up and stand down just to make sure you're awake. So, I'm glad to see you're awake. We won't go through the exercise, um, but welcome to worship. Today, we start a new series, a new sermon series at ECC, and the name of the series is Ancient Stories, Contemporary Truth. Stories are powerful. They always are. They go back through every generation and every culture. And values are communicated through stories. As a matter of fact, one of those famous sets of stories that values are communicated through are called fables. The Scripture is full of stories. I think the difference between the stories of Scripture and fables is that according to the Christian tradition, Biblical stories impart inspired truth. They're not just stories. They're stories that communicate God's Word. Now, of course, in reading those stories, we have to interpret them, right? We have to see things in the stories that help us understand what God is speaking into our life. And as we interpret them, we can get, like, way off in the wrong direction sometimes. We're capable of that. Sometimes we're focused so much on the text itself that we forget to step back and ask what the Spirit is trying to speak through the text. So somewhere in between the extremes of being completely out to lunch, way out in left field, and being so textual that we're not getting the meaning, we want to try to strike that balance. And I want to invite you to enter these stories with me. Now, I want to say something else about this series. Um, This may seem kind of scary to you, but I don't know when it's going to end. Usually, I set up series. It's for the summer. It's for the first semester. It's for the second semester. That's the way it runs. This one, I really don't have a clue. Um, It's really bothering my wife because she's really organized, and she wants an end date, but I told her I just can't give you one. I don't know when we're going to stop because there's all these great stories. I have a hunch that we're going to be looking at these stories even in the second semester of the year. But the stories won't grow old. If anything grows old or worn out, it'll be my delivery, okay? But if you're alert to the Holy Spirit speaking to you through these stories, they won't grow old. So we begin today with our first story, the first part of Abraham's story. And I call that story interactive faith. Here's why. Because faith is more than a static belief. That's what we learn in Abraham's story and what we learn throughout the rest of the Scripture. Faith is more than just some mental assent to a truth communicated from someone. Faith, according to the Scripture, is actually interacting with an invisible God who promises things that you cannot yet see. That's faith. So the story of Abraham plays itself out that way. 
It's interactive. What you just heard read in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, is an episode in the life of Abraham that I'll just call making a commitment. God clearly spoke, and Abraham made a commitment. And the speech of God was quite straightforward. It was this, Abraham, I'm calling you, you, Abram, as his name was then, I want you to leave the land of your fathers and go to a place that you don't know anything about. And there I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Now, when Abraham made the decision to follow God, an act of faith, not just a mental ascent, well, he made a decision to be willing to leave security. If you know anything about ancient culture, you know that security was always wrapped up in location and in family, even more than it is today. Family distributed wealth. An inheritance was huge. Land was almost always tied to your ancestors. Leaving that was leaving security. The security of community, of family, and even of land. So he had to be willing to leave security. To make this commitment to follow God, he also had to be willing to leave other gods. Oh, that doesn't seem so apparent in the text. By the way, we frequently think of Abraham as the father of faith, which he is. And often, we look at Abraham and we say, now there's a guy who really knew God. He understood God from day one. That probably is true as well. But you know what we miss? is that everything we know about Abraham's culture and his background suggests that this episode was perhaps a moment of conversion. This is when we first hear about Abraham. And what we know of Abraham's culture is that there were multiple gods. What we know about anybody's culture, especially in the Babylonian region, was that household gods were inherited, and you worshiped the household gods. And there were many of them. It's not heretical to suggest, as a matter of fact, it's probably very accurate to suggest that when Abraham heard the voice of God, he was hearing God say, Abram, you know who I am, but your heritage is many gods. It's time for you to say yes unequivocally to me and reject those gods. That's what the move meant. He left his family, he left his heritage, and he left multiple gods. It also meant that Abraham had to be willing to follow an invisible God. Because we, what we know of multiple gods in those cultures, whether they're family gods or cultural gods, is that frequently those gods, well, you can attach yourself to them physically. As a matter of fact, we see this labor later in the, in the life of Isaac and Rebekah. 
household gods that you held in your hand. Abraham, Abraham, I want you to follow me. God, where are you? I'm invisible. You can't put me in your knapsack. You can't place me on your shelf. You can't attach me to your family. I'm the God of the universe, the creator of all things. You cannot see me, but I'm calling you. Follow me. So the first episode in the life of Abraham is a commitment that he makes because he hears from God. The second episode in the life of Abraham also happens in chapter 12, but it begins with verse 10. That one is quite different. The first one is about commitment because he heard from God. The second one, I'll just entitle forgetting to listen. Because, as you'll see in the latter half of chapter 12, there is no divine dialogue. The narrator leads us to believe, though he doesn't say it with so many words. He leads us to believe in the first part of Abraham's commitment. He hears from God and he follows. And in the second part of his life, he gets to Canaan and everything gets bad. There's a famine in the land, which is very typical of Canaan. And the first thing he says, I'll do, is what most people said they'd do when a famine in Canaan came along. They went to Egypt. Why? To Egypt? Because in Egypt, it was, well, drought didn't happen down there. The Nile always overflowed its banks. You could always have food. It was called the breadbasket of the ancient world. So Abraham says, here's a rational decision. I'll go south. I'll go down there where I won't starve and my family won't starve. Can, can I fill in the gaps? I know God promised me Canaan. I know God said he would bless me here. But this isn't working out. I got to get out of here. Now, let's be honest. There's nothing wrong with that decision, right? Nothing wrong with it objectively. There's only potentially one problem according to this story. He never consulted with God. Now, we don't know if he did not consult with God. What we know is the narrator doesn't show us a consultation with God. And that leads me to believe, I think, a proper interpretation that the narrator is showing us the life of Abraham without divine dialogue. So Abraham goes south. When he goes south, of course, he concocts a plan because he's worried about what might happen. His wife is beautiful, Sarai, and he says to Sarai, I tell you what, when we get down to Egypt, things might get a little dicey. You're beautiful, and we know what happens to beautiful women. Kings want them in their harem. And so, when we get down there, let's say you're my sister instead of my wife. And the motivation for all this is to protect you, Sarah. No. Read the text. The motivation for this is singular. So I won't die. It's what it says. Let me say you're my sister so they won't kill me. Sarah agrees to the plan. Now, we could go into the details of whether or not they were half-brother and half-sister. That's not the point. It's his wife. And he says, it's not his wife. So sure enough, as soon as they get there, off goes Sarah to the court of Pharaoh. 
Now, if we wanted to fill in the gaps, we would say there's all kinds of things that might have happened there. We don't know if there was any sexual issues going on. Sometimes these kings just had people in their harem for a variety of reasons. They just wanted influence. They just wanted beautiful people around them. But Sarai now belongs to Pharaoh. Now get this. Abraham gives up his wife to save himself. And because Abraham gives up his wife to save himself, Pharaoh starts absolutely dumping blessings on him. In other words, giving up his wife turns into a monetary coup for Abraham. He gets wealthy because he gave up his wife. Can you imagine the thought process going through the man's mind when he's laying in his tent at night? My wife's in Pharaoh's house. Wonder what's going on. My wife's in Pharaoh's house, but I'm getting rich. That's actually what happened. And then the story unfolds further. Because, this is really difficult, because Pharaoh takes Sarah for his wife without knowing that Sarah is Abraham's wife. Because of that, the text says, God punishes Pharaoh's household with diseases. Wait a minute. I'm on Pharaoh's side here for a second, aren't you? He didn't know. He took a person who was beautiful. What else would you do? That's a part of the culture. And God punishes him for doing something that he didn't consider and nobody considered to be morally wrong. I'll just leave that out there as a theological carrot for you to dance around all week because I will not give you an answer. God does what God does. And his sovereignty sometimes absolutely perplexes me. I could conjecture with you about divine promise and all those things, but honestly, I don't get that. God punishes Pharaoh for something he did that he didn't know was wrong. And Pharaoh calls Abraham in and says, what in the world are you doing to me? You let me take your wife? You take your wife and you get out of here. You're causing me all kinds of problems. So Abraham, with morally suspect choices, leaves Egypt richer than when he came in. And Pharaoh gets the judgment of God. Go figure. What do you see in that story? Well, first of all, you see what I think is just selfishness. Abraham's just all about himself. It's not self-sacrificing love, any way you look at it, for his wife. I know the comp of the sociological dynamics of ancient texts and all that kind of stuff, but any way you cut it, Abraham's making a selfish decision. You know what else is remarkable about this text? I've entitled this section, Forgetting to Listen, and I've said because that's no divine dialogue. But that's not actually true. 
There was a divine dialogue. You know who's the only person in the text who listened to God? Pharaoh. Pharaoh got it. The punishment comes from God. Abraham, why did you do this to me? Get out of here. Now, if we have an incredible high with Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12, leaving it all, committing to follow God, we got a remarkable low down here at the end of chapter 12. The same person we call a father of faith. By the time we get to chapter 13, there's another story. This story, well, it's really different. This story is choosing to be selfless. Abraham and Lot brothers have herdsmen and those herdsmen are out there doing their thing and they're fighting over territory it's open range but still this one's mine lots herdsmen and abraham's herdsmen are at each other's throat and they step in as the leaders and say we got to solve this and abraham says lot i'll tell you how we can solve it stand up here with me on this this overlook take a look at all that land out there there's more than enough for both of us matter of fact lot Take your pick. If you choose to go right, I'll go left. If you choose to go left, I'll go right. Statement, lot, take the best. I'll take what's left. That's an incredible contrast to what we saw with Abraham and Sarah. You know, when you make a selfless decision... As a person who's following God, you're not just making a morally selfless decision. At least, not if you see it through the eyes of Abraham. You're making a decision to turn over your rights, to be selfless, and to trust God. Abraham, in effect, is saying, it's okay. You take the best. God has promised me a rich heritage. So you take it. I think that's a remarkable act of faith. You take the well-watered plains, I'll take what's left. You know what's interesting about the text to me? No sooner had Abraham said that Then the narrator gives us these words. And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then they could count your offspring. Go, walk through the length and the breadth of the land that I'm giving you. So Abraham moved his tents, and he followed God. A selfless act followed by a divine promise. The way the story reads, it's almost like Abraham came to himself, and he said, my times are in God's hands, and I'm going to act like it. And God said, I saw that. I want to remind you of what I promised. 
I um, have described three stories in the life of Abraham, all of which are interactivity at some level with God. And they're about faith. I began by saying that faith is more than a static belief. It's an interactive life with God. But I'll say something else about faith. It's more than belief that's just interactive. True faith is a new kind of knowledge. See, sometimes we think of knowledge and then we think of faith. We think of reason and we think of faith. The scriptures tell us that faith is a new kind of knowledge. When you act on the basis of faith, you are able to see things you couldn't see before. You're able to understand realities you couldn't understand before. The, the veil that's on your eyes, that's clouded your eyes, comes off, and you're able to see, you're able to know. Faith is another kind of knowledge. One of the people I read this week was John Walton, who's a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. And like some people, even though he's Christian, he studied uh, under Jewish scholars to prepare for his Old Testament teaching profession. He studied at a Hebrew college, as a matter of fact, and learned great lessons from those that he studied under who weren't Christians themselves. One of his mentors, he refers to in a book in which he describes a lecture that he was giving his professor friend, mentor, he was giving to a group of churches, Christian churches, even though he was Jewish. And he said, I look back at the notes from his speech and I was struck by this. Uh, this professor was something of a theologian and a philosopher, and he engaged with classic philosophers like Plato. And Plato actually says that knowledge is not just what you see. It has something to do with faith as well. But no matter, the professor says, faith is knowledge. But listen to these words. It's very short, very succinct. But faith... Unlike the other kind of knowledge, just the rational kind, is not a constant. It is a light which blazes like a thousand suns. At some times, it only flickers dimly and casts shadows of changing shapes. But even when it's weak, we struggle to brighten the flame. For it is the most precious of all commodities. Man knows no blackness to match the darkness when the light, that light of faith has gone out. And no man who has ever seen it will rest until it's rekindled. And when it burns bright, all other lamps are feeble. The faith of Abraham, the faith we're called to, 
is that kind of faith. Right now, even for me, it seems so very bright on Sunday morning. It seems like that long headlight that illuminates my path. But on Wednesday, it's kind of a dim, flickering flame that sometimes casts uncertain shadows. But it is my life, and I hope it's yours. Because it's a kind of knowledge that supersedes just basic human knowledge. A few questions for us. First, you're being called by God, every one of you. Every one of you is being called by God in some way. Can you, first question, leave the security that you've always trusted and truly follow God? Are you being called to do that in some way? Second question, is it time, because you've heard the call of God, to follow the one true God and to leave all others behind? Is that the voice you now hear? Third question, are you willing, if you're hearing that voice, to follow a mysterious, invisible God that you cannot see, but one who is always demonstrating his love? Fourth question, can you make a commitment to live a selfless life and trust an invisible God who has your best interest in mind. That's interactive faith. It doesn't just start today. It starts today and it goes on and on and on. I, I wanna pray now, but I wanna ask uh, before I do, as the band comes forward, I'd like for us to sing that song again that we sang for offertory, Give Me Faith and then go to everlasting God. Because if you listen to the words of that song, it's a prayer. And the prayer is, Lord, I need faith. Please give it to me. Let's, let's bow and pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're um, so grateful for the stories in Scripture which are um, so numerous and so rich. We thank you uh, that when we look at them, we take a deep look at them, uh, truth emerges that is not on the surface. And Lord, I pray that uh, this morning there's someone here who has heard your voice uh, that clear voice of God that calls them to leave everything else behind. Lord, maybe they've um, been wondering about this thing called Christianity. They've, they've searched for meaning in lots of different places. But perhaps today, Lord, you're calling them. You're calling them to a singular commitment. Oh, God, give them the faith to 
say yes. Lord, for those who are here uh, this morning who've said yes uh, to you, but in the midst of uh, a text like this that speaks to our hearts, they've realized that there's all kinds of things they, they haven't released, that their commitment is at best a divided heart, and at worst, hardly faith at all. We pray for that person or persons, Lord, that this morning you will call them to, to recommit themselves to the God that they have known. And still, though the flame is more like a flickering candle, they do know. May they recommit themselves to you unconditionally and unequivocally. And Lord, for all of us, help us to live practically this week in a selfless way so that we can see how you will take charge of our lives and in spite of ourselves, bless us and bring blessing to others. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.